Good morning, church. I have to apologize in advance for my allergies, so it's going to be kind of awkward if I go to coughing. Just uh, ignore me and let me hide behind my pulpit while I cough, and I, I promise I'll use Germex before I shake your hand at the end of service today. All right, um, so uh, let's get started by a moment of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time that we could uh, study your word. Thank you for uh, these folks here today that have uh, put it on their schedule to worship you. And Lord, we ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so folks, uh, there's not a lot left in me in this morning. Not a lot left in my mind. After um, my daughter Lexi and, and Colton's wedding, um, getting everything set up for that at the place, and all the emotions both my emotions and the emotions of the rest of my family. And, and, and well, I'm almost burnt out. Almost. But not completely. Because Jess and I had a lot of help from you folks. Man, you guys are hard workers. There was a point a few hours uh, after the wedding that I just kind of zoned out. I, I, I didn't know what the next step was. Should I pick up the chairs? Should I fold the tables and put them on the trailer? Should I take down the decorations? And then I realized that in my blurred vision, now, now I have to explain zoning out. Maybe some of you are those kind of people that zone out. Um, I am one of them. Maybe you're not. But if you've never experienced that, then what happens is all of a sudden you realize you're not focusing on anything and you don't know what's going on. But things are still moving in your vision, but it's kind of all blurry. And you don't realize that you've zoned out until you start to come to again. And as I started to come to, I realized there was people moving all about me. People working, people folding chairs, people uh, taking down the decorations and putting the tables on the trailer. They're already doing that. You guys have friends like that? The kind that you can count on to take the initiative to do what needs doing? Now that's a silly question for me to ask because I know you have friends like that. They're in this building with you this morning. Now when the church was originally established, not too long after Jesus' ascension, there were some growing pains. <clears throat> the 12 apostles <coughs> were teaching and they were preaching and as the numbers in the church begin to grow, there were more things to take care of, like taking care of the physical needs of the, the widows. You know, the, the apostles found themselves so busy that they were not able to uh, preach and teach very much. And well, something had to be done. And let me read to you the text in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God 
not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Timian, uh, Paramisius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. You know, <coughs> the church needs hard workers like these seven uh, that they chose. God's message in result to this, the scripture says, continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, these last few verses say, and many of the, the, the priests of the Jewish faith were converted to believe in Jesus as well. Because of these hard workers that the apostles chose. The church needs these hardworking people who will take the initiative to do what needs doing. These hardworking people who, as the scripture say, are well respected, full of the spirit and wisdom, they're called deacons in the first church. Now here at Colony Christian Church, we don't have anyone with the official title of deacon. It's not because we don't like the idea of deacons here at Colony Christian Church. We actually have a specific section in our bylaws pertaining to deacons. And maybe we've had deacons in the past. I, I don't remember that, not as long as I can remember. Um, but it's not that we don't you know, believe in deacons at all. The scripture talks about them. But I think the main reason that we don't give the title of deacon is because we would have to give that title to so many people. Well, we would have to assign a specific deacon to be in charge of giving people the title of deacon. There would be a lot of work to do because so many of you are hardworking, well-respected, full of the spirit and wisdom, just like the text says. And we have lots of ways to serve within our body of Christ. Oh, there's grass to mow. There's a thrift store to run. There's funeral dinners to coordinate. Letters to write. Um, newsletters to write. And children's church curriculum to secure. Toilets and air conditioners to fix. Youth group trips to plan. Teachers appreciation dinners to put together. Three different buildings to clean. And one really large new church building to build. Oh, by the way, I have some pictures of that. Speaking of which, um, here is some pictures of the one is of the, the a view of our stage looking towards the back, just to show you guys um, the, uh, the progress that's being made on it. And the other one on the other side is our stage at the new building. And you see um, five of the six um, workers, well, a lot of people have worked here, but there are six people and Les is not included in this picture. Um, he's the sixth one. That have been working, man, almost every day, uh, 40 hours a week. And, and they're eating lunch right there on our new stage. Yeah. Thank you, guys. 
And I think it's really neat that they have their meals on our stage um, sitting there because, you know, the place, uh, the thing that Jesus did with so many of the people in the scripture is he sat down and ate a meal with them. And that place right there where they are eating and having a meal is going to be the place where the Lord's uh, Supper will be served in our new building. So I thought it was kind of neat. I didn't even... uh, come close to all the tasks that get done on a regular basis within our church body. In that list that I just numbered, I didn't even come close. There's so much going on that uh, around me that sometimes I get stuck. And I could say, say Jessica too, sometimes we just, you know, I get close to burnout. So many things happening within our body. And then I look around And in my blurred vision, I see you guys doing what needs to be done. Now, in a lot of other churches, these jobs are assigned to deacons. Here, well, we've got a lot of unofficial deacons. So here's what 1 Timothy says about deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 8. In the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience (coughs) before they are appointed as deacons. Let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives must be respected and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife, and he must manage his children and his household well. Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have an increased confidence in their faith in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. These qualifications pretty much overlap the ones that we discussed uh, two weeks ago in the elders section that Timothy writes as we go through the book of, of Tim, 1 Timothy. You know, there's, there's a being well-respected, um, not heavy drinkers, not dishonest with money, which the not dishonest with money one really makes sense here because um, in the first church they were specifically putting the deacons in the role of managing the, um, the feeding of the widows and the taking care of the money. And so they need to be honest in their dealings with money. Another one is they need to have integrity. They need to be committed to the mystery of faith, which we'll discuss that more in a while. And they need to manage their household well and be faithful to their wife. And only one wife, by the way. And that wife must be nice. Well, the scripture says uh, that the wife is not to slander others or not to be uh, shrewd. So we can interpret that. The, the wife must be nice. Now, the scripture is directed at men. Paul directs it at men. In the elders and overseers section that we reviewed just right before this a couple weeks ago, um, Paul said not to have 
the women teacher or preach to the men. But in the deacon section here, he is, he, even though he is directing it, he is directing it to men, but he doesn't say that deacons should only be men. And Paul, this, this, same, this is the guy who's writing this, also writes um, in the book of Romans, he commends a woman named Phoebe, I think that's how you pronounce her name, in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. That's how I've always pronounced her name. He says, I commend you, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was who is a deacon in the church in Centuria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many and especially to me. And right after that in the next verse, um, he commends um, my, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me, and I am thankful to them. So um, are all the Gentile churches. So here's a husband and wife, and um, Paul mentions them that they are involved with ministry. Deacon work is ministry. Now, there's one qualification out of that list that we just um, that I just read in First uh, Timothy that I really want to hit hard today, and that's integrity. Integrity is so important in our serious living. It's so important for our everyday ministry. Oh, you can mess up a lot of things. But if you have integrity, then you have what it takes to rise above your mistakes and to be a better person. Integrity means standing strong. It means uh, standing steadfast on the truth. Now, when a building has a structural integrity, it means that the building stands on a strong, this building stands strong on a foundation. Or think about it this way. If you have ever used a finish nail, that's one of those nails that doesn't have a head on it. So that when it goes into the, uh, the trim, it has a little head on it, not a big one, um, it's not easily seen. That finish nail is slightly smaller in diameter than a piece of bailing wire. But if you took a piece of bailing wire, the same length and, this, and just as straight as a finish nail, and you tried to drive them both into a two-by-four, the finish nail is going to work. The bailing wire is not. It will not drive into a piece of two-by-four because it doesn't have the integrity. It is made out of soft metal. It's soft. It'll bend over. It doesn't have the integrity to be used for the same thing that the finish nail is to be used for. Have you been pounded in this life? What are you made out of? Soft metal? Or do you have integrity? Are you able to hold up under the pounding? So if you've been pounded, if life's been tough on you and you've been bent, don't lose hope. 
my grandpa Rebel. Man, he, he never bought a new nail in his life, at least as far as I know. Um, there were nails everywhere, and he could just collect and use, and always plenty of old ones. And, uh, man, he could nail a crooked nail into that board like I'd never seen somebody. He would take a nail that had bent, been bent over in three different places, and most of us would throw it away, and he'd lay it sideways on that board and pound it straight, mostly straight, and then proceed to turn it up and hammer it, changing the direction each time he hit so that that nail would go straight into the board and be useful. Now, if the nail didn't hold up, because you know when a nail's bent once, it's likely to bend there again, and it was most of the way in usually, and that's when the finally the top part of it may go ahead and bend. Then he would just go ahead and ram that nail in the rest of the way, sideways, bent over, no matter what. And he would beat it until it was flush with the two-by-four sunk in there. And then he would move on with his building. Now, it wasn't pretty when that nail bent and didn't have its integrity. The hole was odd-shaped. The nail was smashed. Will God use a crooked man? He wants us to have integrity. He wants us not to bend. But will he use a, a person who has been crooked? Well, absolutely. He will. And there's two ways that he can use you. He can pound you and straighten you out like lay you sideways on the board and straighten you out and then start using you for his intended purpose. That's the pro process of repentance, of asking forgiveness, of being made straight. This is asking forgiveness not only from God, but from the others who you've done wrong to. And then God can use you as he intended. Or you can stay crooked. And you can get rammed and shoved into that board no matter what. And it's not very pretty. You can be an example to other people either way. If you have integrity, you can help build God's church and increase his kingdom. Now, I want to give you some examples of integrity in the Bible. Zacchaeus. You find this in Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> he is a tax collector, and he is known for his dishonest practices. He basically stole money from his people for his own selfish desires. And then he experienced a transformative encounter with Jesus. When he recognized who Jesus was, his Savior, and committed to living a life following the Lord and paying back his wrongs, he became a person of integrity. He paid back the money that he stole, and his actions demonstrated his integrity and his willingness to be used by the Lord for the good of his kingdom. Now, Zacchaeus was in a bad place. 
He had to stand up and make a decision to own his mistakes. No one was going to like him at first. Even though he had made the change already, uh, his, uh, his people whom he had cheated were not going to accept him at first, but he knew he had to do it. Listen, integrity cannot be an accident. One of my buddies uh, told me a story uh, this past week, and um, he said that uh, he was on a, a, a road trip with his, with his wife, and uh, he was getting tired, and he needed to use the restroom, so he pulled over in a gas station, <clears throat> and uh, he went into the gas station, he was tired, and he just went into the restroom, and he was in the restroom, and then he realized uh, that there were no urinals, <coughs> and at that point, he's like, uh-oh, I'm, and he had that thought, I'm in the women's restroom. Just as he had that thought, the door began to open, and he had a, an instant to make a decision, and he decided, I'll go right in this stall here and shut the door so that they don't know that I'm in the women's restroom. It's that kind of a decision that you make spur of the moment without being um, you know, intentional about it. And so he went into the stall, and he shut the door behind him, but he forgot to lock it. You know, one bad decision leads to another bad decision. It just compounds. And so he's in the stall thinking, oh, I'm in the women's restroom. I, I don't want them to know I'm here. This is awkward, and what do I do? And then, of course, the women opened the door that he didn't lock, and there he was. They scream, and he feels like a creep and everything. He's like, no, I didn't mean And he ran out and uh, ran out of the bathroom and just uh, sit in the car and waited for his wife to come out. And his wife comes to the car, and she said, she, she said um, man, there was some issue with a guy being in a restroom or in the girl's restroom, and they're all worked up inside of there. And he's like, yeah, I know, I know. Let's go, go, go. You see, in that split second, I want to, I want to tell you who it was. It's an excellent example of not having integrity, but he is a man of integrity. But um, uh, in that split second, he had a decision. Own his mistake when they opened the door. Oh, I am in the wrong restroom. I'm sorry. Awkward? Yes. But not as awkward when they opened the door and seen a dude hiding in the stall. We have to be intentional about making the decision of integrity right when the situation arises. It's so important. Stand up and own your mistakes before it goes too far. Hey, there's a fellow named Jocko Willink. He's now a retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer. He led task force a task unit bruiser in the Iraq War, which became the most highly decorated special operations, um, special operation in that war. And after the war, he went on to train other SEALs, and uh, now he's written um, several books, and he's, he's uh, highly decorated. But in his book called Extreme Ownership, he tells about a pivotal moment in his life. Again, this guy is highly decorated. He's highly successful, very honored in, in, in all the points of the military, especially the SEALs. But he says how he got there is from a bad situation and how he re, uh, reacted because of that. When 
He was in Iraq uh, fighting a battle, and I encourage you to read the book to get the details. But I'll give you the overview. There was a situation where they needed to get into uh, um, a place. There was a building, and there was some fire coming from that building, and they needed to stop the fire, stop the, uh, the shooting that was coming from that building. And they had already peppered the building all the way around with 50 cal machine guns, and they were just about to drop to call in uh, a flight to drop a bomb on there and destroy the whole thing. And then he realized he did not know where his sniper team was at. He hadn't heard from them in the last uh, 24 hours, and he couldn't place their location. And at that point, he realized, okay, stop firing. And he stepped out on a limb and uh, went to the door of this, this place that was now a bunker, this concrete building, busted it open, and he had guns on him, and it was his sniper team that was in the building. Now, over that battle that ensued for a couple of hours, uh, one soldier died. It was what they call a blue-on-blue blue or friendly fire. Now, normally, this type of situation would end a military career for the leader of that operation. But not in Jocko's case. He owned up to his mistake. Even though it would seem that he didn't make any real big mistakes, like when you reviewed the whole situation, one guy made a little mistake, and another guy made a little mistake, and, and his mistake was um, he didn't keep track of his the location of a sniper team, which only they did sometimes every 24 hours, so it wasn't that he made a big mistake. No one could uh, accept all the blame there, but he stepped in front of his commanding officers who were about to fire him probably, and he said, it was my fault. It was my fault. I should have done better. I should have trained my men better. I should have double-checked. I should have did this and this and this, and he listed a bunch of reasons, a bunch of things that he could have done better and said it was my fault. And you know what happened because of that? His officers and the soldiers underneath of him trusted him even more because he took credit for his unit's mistakes. He stood up and he decided to make changes. He didn't cast the blame onto somebody else or try to explain it away. Now, here's someone in Scripture who uh, didn't own up to their mistakes. Judas Iscariot. He sold out Jesus. He accepted payment from the enemy so that Jesus could be killed. Now, remember the nail we were talking about driving just a little bit ago? Judas was bent several different places. Didn't seem like he was any good, but it wasn't too late for Judas. Even after he had betrayed Jesus, it wasn't too late for him. He could have repented. He could have laid himself sideways on the board to be straightened out and then to be used by God for good. He could have started a life of building integrity right then, but instead he went to the leading priests and the elders. He went to the Jewish priests who were against Jesus when he should have went to Jesus. He should have went straight to Jesus. And you know what the priests told Judas? 
What do we care? What do we care? That's your problem. Then Judas gave up and took his own life. You know, the Son of God had to die so that you and I could have forgiveness from our sins. He had to die. God used Judas for sure, but it wasn't pretty. And Judas' final decision to take his own life didn't get him or anyone else closer to heaven. Now here's another example. I love Genesis chapter 39 where it talks about Joseph and how he resisted the advances of Potiphar's wife. Oh, she was a powerful woman. I'm sure that Joseph knew that if, if he turned her proposition down, she would be angry and there would be consequences for him. And there were. She lied to her husband and Joseph was thrown into prison. He was thrown into prison and everyone around him whom he respected and who respected him now looked down on him. Despite the potential consequences, Joseph was committed to honor God and to remain faithful both to God and to Potiphar, his boss. And it paid off in the end. Now let me give you one more example of integrity in the Bible. Jesus is the ultimate example of integrity. He constantly and consistently lived in perfect alignment with God's will and character. His teachings emphasized truth, righteousness, and love. And his sacrificial death on the cross demonstrated his unwavering integrity and commitment to redeem humanity. That's you and I. It didn't give him instant gratification, but it gave us eternal salvation if we accept Jesus. If we accept Jesus. And you have to intentionally accept him. It can't be an accident. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 8, I tell you the truth. Everyone who <laughs> acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. It might be easy to acknowledge Jesus in your mind. You could even flippantly acknowledge Jesus in your mind, just uh, happen to, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, um, inside. But if you have to get up in front of everyone, if you have to speak about Jesus to other people, well, that doesn't happen accidentally. That's got to be intentional. And going back to the qualifications of a person who does the work of a deacon, First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, it says they must be committed to the mystery of faith now revealed. The mystery of the faith now revealed. What's the mystery of faith? Next verses tell us without question. This is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in human body and vindicated by the spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. If we could sum that up in a few words, 
it will be Jesus is Lord. You can't serve the community or the church without being committed to Jesus who is Lord. Oh, you can fake it for a while, but you would get burned out. Look around you. The mystery is alive and well here. I pray if you ever have a situation where the struggle is real, the Christian walk, the, the, the path that you're on trying to follow Jesus gets so tough that you're about to burn out, then I want you to look around and see the folks around you. And I want you to be the people around that person who might be burning out, doing the Lord's work without tiring. If you look around you, the mystery is alive and well. The body of Christ is alive and well here in this room. The work that you guys do is evidence that Jesus is Lord. And the scripture is calling us to be people of integrity. Now, if you haven't accepted Jesus yet, if you're uh, on the path looking for something more in life, then uh, there is no better time to accept Jesus, then just as soon as you possibly can. He's waiting for you. He's ready to straighten you out. And it might be a little bit painful sometimes. But oh, it's worth it. It's worth it to be used by God for His intended purpose. His intended purpose is for all of us to get to heaven. Now let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we understand that you want us to, to be people of integrity, that uh, you have built us a foundation, that you are our foundation to stand on. And God, that faith in you, even though sometimes we don't understand it, faith in